Let me open us with a word of prayer. <coughs> Gracious Father, we thank you um, for the blessing of your church. Well, let's, let's start with for the blessing of your love for and grace towards us. Um, we all know that but for you and your work in each of our lives, your graciousness towards us and your mercy and your love for us, we would not be here. We would not know you. And we would be forever lost. So we begin by thanking you, Lord, for your grace to us, each of us. We thank you for the work of your son. And we thank you for your church. That you have brought us together this morning. And uh, we ask, Lord, that in this hour you would open your word to us, that you would teach us, that we would only walk away with your truth, and any error that might be spoken today would be lost in the noise. Um, we pray, Father, that you would continue to sanctify us to your glory that we, you would continue to turn our hearts forever away from this world and the love of it and towards you, giving us a desire for you above all things. We also lift up the service that follows. We ask, Lord, that you would be glorified in it, that you would enable us as your people to bring worship that is worthy and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, um, so if, if you all recall, we a month ago I was teaching on chapter 10, uh, praying to a sovereign God, and I got I ran seven minutes over and just abruptly ended and said, well, we're done. And we really didn't finish. So I'm going to take the opportunity to kind of get review, get us started back up, and, um, <clears throat> and then finish what we started last month, okay? So if you'll recall, last time uh, we were presented with two propositions. Anybody happen to remember what those propositions were? Anybody got make like took notes and wrote it down or anything like that? Well, of course not. Why would we do that? Stay awake or fall asleep. <laughs> okay. All right, two propositions. First one was God is absolutely sovereign. But his sovereignty never functions in Scripture to reduce human responsibility. Based on that proposition, can anybody tell me what the second proposition was? You guys give me real confidence as a teacher. Let me tell you what. All right. How about this? Human beings are responsible creatures. That is, <clears throat> they believe... They disobey, they respond, there is moral significance in their choices. However, human responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or make God absolutely contingent. Okay? And if you'll recall, we looked at a number of uh, examples from the Bible where uh, Dr. Carson felt like that these two propositions are seen side by side. So what was the first example that we looked at? Hey, we got a way to go, Art. Yes, we looked at Joseph. What part of Joseph did we look at? Both ends. Say what? Both ends. Both ends of Joseph? Yeah, with his uh, we really looked at the back end of Joseph, when the brothers were scared after, after their dad, if you recall, when their dad died, they came to Joseph and they said, uh, dad told us <laughs> that, 
to tell you that you are to forgive us for what we did to you. And Joseph responded and said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Okay? And so we saw right there that basically, and, and it's pretty graphic. And the other thing, I guess, to think about or to remind ourselves of, of is that these are stories in God's word. So these are the stories that God has given us to explain himself to us, himself to us, okay? And so they're, they're not just interesting stories. They're revelatory stories. They're stories that, 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 that God felt like best explains himself to his people, right? They're the ones he's given us, right? And so we, we, we try to pay as careful attention to those as we possibly can. All right, so anyway, <clears throat> that was Joseph. What was the next example that we looked at? All right, I realized it was a month ago. So we looked at David's census. Can anybody remember the somewhat surprising aspect of that story? Okay, say what? Yeah, that's right. So interestingly, in Samuel, the passage says, and David basically caused David to, it says God incited David to number the people. All right? And everybody, including, uh, remember, the generals, war guys who... I mean, and I think in matters of that nature are pretty, pretty much clueless. But they even knew that was a bad idea, okay? All right? And tried to talk David out of it. And then in Second Chronicles, or I don't know if it's Second, I'm not sure which Chronicles, but in the Chronicles passage, who does it say incited David? Say, okay. All right. Uh, what's the third third example we looked at. All right, I'll help you out. Assyria. What was the what was the point of Assyria? Y'all have slept a whole bunch since then, haven't you? Okay. Remember basically Assyria was God's basically says, "I have raised you up to judge my people." All right? And when I'm done using you to judge my people, I'm going to judge you for what you've done to my people. Right? And what does God, how does God, what analogy does God use for Assyria in his hand? Assyria was what? A, what? The rod of my anger. Yes, well, he did say that. Later on, though, he talks about he talks about tools, right? And he basically equates Assyria with an axe, right? Remember that? Okay. And 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 and, and but but Assyria wasn't an axe. I mean, Assyria was it's a whole empire of of generals. And a you know king and everything else, it's people, and yet God says you're just an axe in my hand. Okay. And I'm I, I'd like to make the point again that I really truly think that that we are closer to an axe. And being an axe, truly, we are closer to an axe, and an axe is closer to us than we are to God. So, and 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 we're we these these notions. What we want to do is we want to begin to incorporate them into how we think about God's sovereignty and how He exercises. His will in his creation. All right? Okay.
Um, sorry, what? Explain what I mean by? Well, okay, so what I mean by that is is that an axe is made of material things and you're made of, a, of material things, all right? And God is spiritual, all right? And the gap between that spiritual existence and my existence is greater than the gap between me and a, un, a, a, an inanimate object, material object. Okay, and, and and I realized that that well, well wait a minute but really stop and think about it truly the gap between us and God is vast right it is truly vast and um, and we and and it's easy because God is personal it is so easy to forget that. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's truly in terms of Israel and their worship of God and their obedience to him, it is incredible the grace he gave them because of the way they treated their God. And, and those stories make God seem fatherly. And he is fatherly. I'm not saying he's not. But if that's the thing that we, that, that if we only focus on that, we forget that who he is, is the Lord of the universe. Okay. All right. Um, so the other ones, we, uh, Jesus and talking about the role of the Father and himself in salvation, we looked at that. Uh, in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, trembling for it is God. Um, we looked at Paul's evangelism in Corinth. Kind of, are these kind of reminding you of things? Of, and then the last one, Anybody remember the last one? Because I said it was my favorite one. No, it was not. We got through my... I even had slides for the last one. I even had slides for the last one. Remember it? Peter and Paul and the paralytic in, in, uh, in the temple. Remember? And uh, basically how uh, the... And the end, it was a long story, frankly, leading up to the fact that Peter and Paul were brought before the Jewish leaders, and the Jewish leaders said, um, told them, you, you must never, uh, you, you must never preach that again, okay? And it was, it was, I think it was a clear warning that came with deadly consequences. Peter and Paul returned to the people who were praying for them, and, they, and when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, and this, was the, this is the key passage of this example, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your, our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, among, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. <clears throat> so this prayer harkens back 
to, and I would point out that we are looking at this very same thing where both of these principles, both of these propositions are seen as Blake is working through the crucifixion. The, the Jews, the high priest and his council, were they coerced to do what they did by God? Did he override their wills in order to make them do what needed to be done in order that Christ might be crucified? No. I don't think we can say that he did. I think they did exactly what they wanted to do, and they chose that themselves. Pilate, as he stood there and said, this man is innocent, but caved to their pressure, right? Was he, was he coerced by God to do that? No. Now, he was coerced, but he was coerced by men. And in his weakness, he gave in to that, all right? He chose to. He chose it. But in the end, what happened? A plan that was laid out from all eternity took place that day. All right? Nothing that was not intended happened. And a completely, totally righteous man stood in our place, bore our guilt. and then gave his atonement to us. Okay. Um, all right, so I'd like to do, take time to do one more example. This, this is, I've been, I've been listening to Kristen Getty read through the Bible. Have y'all heard? The ESV Bible app has her as a reader. And... Um, a lot of people, I think, find her a bit distracting, but I love her. I've, I've been learning new words like adversaries, okay, and war, and poor, and that's not exactly how she says it, but says it. But anyway, adversaries. You know, you all know what that one, one is? This? Adversaries. Yeah. It's like, you know, and actually for me, it's it's like when she says says those things, it's like, okay, stop, think, what's she saying? And it keeps my attention, you know, and everything. So it's been kind of fun. Well, anyway, we're, we're going through the Bible together. And, uh, um, and I've been, and so, so we, we just finished Saul. We're just about to finish. We're about to be done with Saul. He's not quite dead yet, but, but we're getting there. And, uh, Anyway, but this example occurred to me as we were kind of going through, through the, uh, the, and I find it a little bit fascinating. Um, there are three major archetypes in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. And what are the, does anybody know what those archetypes are? What's that? Adam? Okay, I'm, I'm not thinking of, of, of people in this case. I'm thinking of roles. Yes, there you go. Prophet, priest, and king. Okay? And um, we see him fulfill, we, you know, we basically, the, the, you know, the, the, the Old Testament is filled with prophets. All right? And then we see Jesus come on earth, and his whole earthly ministry is one of a prophet. Right? And then, and then as priest. Okay? And that one, I don't know that we would necessarily completely recognize that, but Hebrews is pretty clear that Christ is the great high priest, okay? And then, there, and then there is king. You know, and in the Gospels, Jesus talks about, I mean, one of the major themes of Christ's preaching is the kingdom of God. And he is sitting on his throne today as king of the kingdom of God. All right. So, well, I think it's helpful to trace out how God established the earthly basis for that kingship. 
In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, basically it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the, first note, that's the first note of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. All right? In Genesis 17, 1 through 8, and when Adam, I'm sorry, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between you and me, and you may multiply and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. <clears throat> In these verses... We see that God's Abraham contains God's covenant with Abraham contains two parts. A promise of an offspring, singular, through whom the whole world will be blessed. And a promise of offspring plural that would become a nation, through whom would come kings and who would dwell in in, in a place, Canaan which would be given as an everlasting possession. Through the singular offspring, God would fulfill his blessing, prom, his, his blessing promise to Abraham in Christ, who would fulfill the spiritual aspects of the old covenant and make a new covenant with the elect through adoption. This was, is the messianic portion of the covenant. The multiple offspring... With, through the multiple offspring, he would fulfill his nation's promise through procreation and lineage by establishing Israel and the nation's descent, establishing Israel and nations descended from Ishmael, Esau, etc. Right? The nation of Israel, God created as a means or a vehicle by which he would fulfill the messianic part of the covenant, the incarnation of God in Christ as prophet, priest, and king. In the ensuing chapters in Genesis and Exodus, we see that God did, does, and, okay, and remember, at this moment when God makes this promise <laughs> of nations, we're going to come from you, Abraham is, has, has no, no child. He's 99 years old. He has no hope of a child. Okay? Um, and yet, Jacob, you know, basically, he has Isaac, Isaac comes, right? Isaac has two children, Jacob and Esau. This isn't taken off real fast, all right? But Jacob manages to produce 12 guys, okay? So now, okay, we're, we're kicked off here, all right? Okay, but God then takes Jacob and his family of 70 into Egypt to preserve them and to clearly create an environment by which a, a, a people of 70 become a nation of 600,000 approximately, okay, in 400 years. 
And then he brings them out with mighty and super, supernatural power out of Egypt and takes them back to the land that he promised to Abraham. Right? There's a lot of time in here for all of this to go wrong. All right? And yet God, we see, God's hand. And, and, and God is showing how, how he, and, he, and it's, it's a subtle thing, I feel like, because it's just stories. It's historical stories that he tells us. And so it's somewhat subtle. He doesn't just point blank say, see how I carried out my plan. And see how my will was done. He doesn't put that in our face, but this is what he's showing us. In these, in these events, okay? <clears throat> then in 1 Samuel we read, When Samuel had become old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel in Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Okay, sorry. Like, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel and when, he, when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now, then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. <clears throat> Thus the kingdom of Israel is established. All right? In this moment. Now, it is interesting to me that God makes it quite clear that, that, that in so doing, Israel is rejecting him. They, they, they are unable to trust their God to lead them sufficiently. And they've demonstrated this inability from almost day one, right? Okay? They've gone after, I mean, they, it's, it is, you know, you want to say, say, like at Mount Sinai, that they have, they have experienced God come down, from, down up on the mountain, speak to them, scare them to death, nearly to death, Okay? And then, and then within 40 days, they're making a golden calf. Okay? And you want to just say, what are y'all thinking? Well, in my, and then I stop and I realize, you know, Ken, if God had not given you a new heart, if God's Spirit is not working in you, you'd be just like them. Okay, anyway. Um, so, the, so basically, the, it, 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 and he is sitting on his throne today as king of the kingdom of God. All right. So, I think it's helpful to trace out how God established the earthly basis for that kingship. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, basically it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's the first note that's the first note of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. All right? In Genesis 17:1 through 8, and when Adam, I'm sorry, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, "I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between you and me, and you may multiply and may multiply you greatly." Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. In these verses... We see that God's Abraham contains God's covenant with Abraham contains two parts. A promise of an offspring, singular, through whom the whole world will be blessed. And a promise of offspring plural that would become a nation, through whom would come kings and who would dwell in in, in a place, Canaan which would be given as an everlasting possession. Through the singular offspring, God would fulfill his blessing, prom, his, his blessing promise to Abraham in Christ, who would fulfill the spiritual aspects of the old covenant and make a new covenant with the elect through adoption. This was, is the messianic portion of the covenant. The multiple offspring... With, through the multiple offspring, he would fulfill his nation's promise through procreation and lineage by establishing Israel and the nation's descend, by establishing Israel and nations descended from Ishmael, Esau, etc. Right? The nation of Israel, God created as a means or a vehicle by which he would fulfill the messianic part of the covenant, the incarnation of God in Christ as prophet, priest, and king. In the ensuing chapters in Genesis and Exodus, we see that God established, does, okay, and remember, at this moment when God makes this promise <laughs> of nations, we're going to come from you. Abraham is, has, has no, no child. He's 99 years old. He has no hope of a child. Okay? Um, and yet, Jacob, you know, basically, he has Isaac, Isaac comes, right? Isaac has two children, Jacob and Esau. This isn't taken off real fast, all right? But Jacob manages to produce 12 guys, okay? So now, okay, we're, we're kicked off here, all right? Okay, but God then takes Jacob and his family of 70 into Egypt to preserve them and to clearly create an environment by which a, a, a people of 70 become a nation of 600,000 approximately, okay, in 400 years. And then he brings them out with mighty and super, supernatural power 
out of Egypt and takes them back to the land that he promised to Abraham. Right? There's a lot of time in here for all of this to go wrong. All right? And yet God, we see, God's hand. And, and, and God is showing how, how he, and, he, and it's, it's a subtle thing, I feel like, because it's just stories. It's historical stories that he tells us. And so it's somewhat subtle. He doesn't just point blank say, see how I carried out my plan. And see how my will was done. He doesn't put that in our face, but this is what he's showing us. In these, in these events, okay? <clears throat> then in 1 Samuel we read, When Samuel had become old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel in Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Okay, sorry. Like, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel and when, he, when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now, then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. <clears throat> Thus the kingdom of Israel is established. All right? In this moment. Now, it is interesting to me that God makes it quite clear that, that, that in so doing, Israel is rejecting him. They, they, they are unable to trust their God to lead them sufficiently. And they've demonstrated this inability from almost day one, right? Okay? They've gone after, I mean, they, it's, it is, you know, you want to say, say, like at Mount Sinai, that they have, they have experienced God come down, from, down up on the mountain, speak to them, scare them to death, nearly to death, Okay? And then, and then within 40 days, they're making a golden calf. Okay? And you want to just say, what are y'all thinking? Well, in my, and then I stop and I realize, you know, Ken, if God had not given you a new heart, if God's spirit is not working in you, you'd be just like them. Okay, anyway. Um, so, the, so basically, the, it, it, is this, is a this is a lesson about prayer. And Samuel cried all night on behalf of Saul, and his prayer was not granted. We're going to hear, hopefully, get to the as we get to the end, we are going to see prayers that are granted. And I want to contrast, I want us to have the contrast of the prayers that are granted versus the prayer that is not. Okay, so where do we go from here? We must be careful about our assumptions. For example, 
And, and this is also, we, we covered this, but I'm, I'm picking up here and we're going to go through it again. These are important points. Freedom. In our experience, do we know of any freedom that does not come from some, with some sort of constraints? If you'll recall, I used me as a professional basketball player as an example. That, that will never happen because I have constraints. All right? Given this, why is it when we think of moral freedom, we assume that there must be, that it must be unconstrained or it cannot be freedom? Carson says, sometimes without thinking about it, we assume that such freedom must entail the power to work outside God's sovereignty. Freedom, we think, involves absolute power to be contrary. That is, the power to break any constraint so that there is no necessity in the choice that we make. But I think in all of these stories, we have seen that in fact, all of our choices are constrained. They're constrained by who we are and what is in our hearts. We choose, and I'm going to use the word freely, we choose freely, but we choose in accord with who we are and what is in our hearts. Okay? And but for the grace of God, what is in our hearts is deadly. Freedom, instead, should be tied to Desire. Desire. Where does desire live? In our hearts. Human beings choose to do what they want to do, and this is always constrained by who and what. Oh, there you go. I'm running ahead of myself. Okay, Carson again. The only reason for bringing this up is to insist that our two propositions as difficult and mysterious as they are, can be made to look silly, even flatly contradictory. If we begin with questionable assumptions and definitions that are not borne out in the scriptures. Secondly, God's asymmetric relationship to good and evil. Carson again, it is important to see that God does not stand behind good and evil exactly, in exactly the same way. <clears throat> there are two positions to void, avoid. One, that God does not stand behind evil in any sense. Because there is evil and God does not... So, okay. Because there is evil and God does not... To stand behind it in any sense, then there must be some other entity or power that is outside God's control that challenges him. It's the implication. If God is not behind evil in some sense, then, then there must be, then we, then we devolve into dualism, right? It's pretty clear. God does not reveal himself to be one half of two powers, okay? He does not. All right. Or that God stands behind good and evil in exactly the same way. If we say that, in this case, then God's relationship to good and evil, then, then we are saying that he ordains both. Because we do say that God, well, no, we don't say. God says that he ordains good. This, is a, this would be a symmetrical view of the relationship, and which would mean that God may be powerful, but he is also amoral, and therefore neither good nor bad, he would not be holy. But the Bible teaches that God is good, and that he is a holy God, and therefore this symmetrical view cannot be true. What the Bible does present us with is that God's relationship to good and evil is asymmetrical. He stands behind good and evil such, in such a way that good 
can be ultimately credited to him. And now I'm quoting Carson. What is evil is inevitably created to, credited to secondary agents and all their malignant effects. They cannot escape his sway in exactly the same way that Satan has no power over Job without God's sanction. Yet God remains mysteriously distant from the evil itself. Why does he say mysteriously here? I say mysteriously, and now I'm quoting him again. He answers this question. I say mysteriously because how he does this is mysterious for reasons still to be explored. In fact, it is, very, it is the very mysteriousness of his control that prompts not a few biblical writers to wrestle in agony over the problem of evil. Not only the writer Job, but also Habakkuk and some of the psalmists and others. Most important, our two propositions concerning God's sovereignty and human responsibility are directly tied to the nature of God. The wonderful truth is that God is both transcendent and personal. He exists above, and, uh, he exists above or beyond time and space. Since he, ex since he existed before the universe was created, from this exalted and scarcely imaginable reach, his sovereignty rules over the works of his hands. And yet he's personal. He presents himself not as raw power or irresistible force, but as a father, as Lord, and I might add as comforter. All of my most meaningful relationships with God are bound up with the fact that God has disclosed himself to be a person. I'm still quoting, I'm still reading from the book. Perhaps it is the way God apparently stands outside of time and space that enables him to handle secondary causes the way he does. And I love this. I do not know. What does time look like to a transcendent God? I do not know. I only know that the Bible speaks of his predestinating power and his foreordination of events, even though these are categories of time. I suppose that if he was to, is to communicate effectively with us, he must graciously stoop to use categories that we can understand. But despite all the mysteries borne up with the nature of God, I perceive on the basis of Scripture that He is simultaneously personal and transcendent. He is utterly sovereign over His created order, yet He is nothing less than personal as He deals with me. Sometimes it's more important to worship such a God than understand Him. This is the, when I, I ask the question, why would an utterly sovereign God ever have cause to regret? I'm going to skip a whole bunch of stuff because I'm out of, running out of time. Uh, I will point out, however, real quick. So, and, I'm, and, and I, I want to do this sympathetically because I love John Frame. Uh, but John Frame attempts to try to get a little closer to an answer here. And in so doing, and, and, we, and we ran into this as we were teaching this book right here. Okay? And we ran into this, and it was at that moment that we stopped teaching this book because we got this far and we didn't finish. And I have in my notes here, and, and, and just real quick, I'm going to read Frame's attempt to try to resolve this a little bit. History involves constant change. And so as an agent in history, God himself changes. On Monday, he wants a certain thing to happen. And on Tuesday, he wants something else to happen. He is grieved one day and pleased the next. In my view, 
This is more than just anthropomorphic description. In these accounts, God is not merely like an agent in time. He really is in time, changing as others change. And we should not, and we should not say that his atemporal, changeless existence is more real than his changing existence in time. As the term anthropomorphic might suggest, both are real. And I have this paragraph outlined in red. And I have a note. Rob Webster pointed this out. What's my point here? One, because, because I, I, when I, I taught that actual chapter, and, and, I, and I read frame in a very trusting non-critical faction. I've completely missed it. And I put those things out there, you know, like, go with it. All right? And it wasn't until I was up here and Rob and Blank were challenging these things that I suddenly realized, oops, I've messed up. Okay? So I want to encourage you to read and listen critically especially when guys like me are up here teaching you, okay? Everything, everything needs to be taken back to the Word with questions about fit, consistency, correspondence, and accuracy. Everything. And when we get to areas where we end up saying, that's my second point, there is some mystery here. We need to realize that we are on the edge of a very slippery slope. It is very, in these moments, it is very important to think biblically with careful orthodoxy and go no further. And I think that's what Carson is doing here. And we see it when he says, I don't know. So we must grant that God is utterly sovereign and human beings are morally responsible creatures. God himself is both transcendent and personal. All this involves a significant degree of mystery. Carson, how can we assume that these complementary pairs of truths operate in the right way in our lives? By doing our best to ensure that these complementary truths function in our lives the same way they function in the lives of believers. And he gives examples. In the case of election, what they do not do is they do not foster fatalism. It does not douse evangelical zeal. What it does do is it emphasizes the wonder of grace, ensures the certainty of spiritual faithfulness among God's people, and encourages perseverance in evangelism. Exhortation to believe and obey. What they do not do, they do not present a frustrated, dependent God. They do not make God contingent. What they do do is they increase our responsibility emphasize the urgency, and show what is the proper response to this kind of God. God's sovereign providence, what they do not do is authorized uncaring fatalism. Allow us to be morally indifferent since I can't help it anyway. What it does do is it provides grounds for believing that everything is in God's control so that all things will work out for the good of the lives of God's people. And we must deploy exactly the same approach when we come to prayer. What it does not do, it does not function as a disincentive to pray. What it does do, it helps us to avoid certain kinds of preposterous praying, urges us to be persistent in our requests, and helps us to pray in line with God's will. Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may be glorified in you. It was an appointed time for glorification for the Father through the Son, and it had arrived. 
Yet Jesus does not just go with your will be done. He prayed for the fulfillment of specific goals of that hour. He knew what those goals were and he prayed for them. Daniel is another example which when he realized that the 70 years prophesied that Israel would be dispersed and out of the land where it's about to end, what did Daniel pray for? He prayed that God would return the people to the land. He didn't just say, God said it's going to happen, so it's going to happen. Interestingly, he prayed for it. Moses. You'll recall, I talked about how within 40 days they make a calf, and so they're, they're prostrating themselves to an, a, a, an idol. And the Lord tells Moses, get down from here and let my wrath fall upon these people. I'm going to destroy them. And then I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm done with this. And I, you know, I, I would not fault God for doing that. I mean, I, I, I really wouldn't. I mean, would you? But what does Moses pray? But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he did bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Ha! That's dramatic effect. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And observes, and from here on out, we're hearing from Carson. The extraordinary importance of these passages must not be missed. God expects to be pleaded with. He expects godly believers to intercede with him. Their intercession is his own appointed means for bringing about his relenting. And if they fail in this respect, then he does not relent, and his wrath is poured out. If we understand something similar to have happened in the life of Moses, we must conclude that Moses is effective in prayer, not in the same sense that God would have broken his covenant promises to the patriarchs, or in the sense that God temporarily lost his self-control until Moses managed to bring God back to his senses. Rather, in God's mercy, Moses proved to be God's own appointed means through intercessory prayer for bringing about the relenting that was nothing other than a gracious confirmation of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The really wonderful truth is that human beings like Moses and you and me can participate in bringing about God's purposes through God's own appointed means. In short, even though God's nature is in many respects profoundly mysterious to us, we shall not go far wrong if we will allow the complementary aspects of God's character to function in our lives in the way they function in the lives of his servants in Scripture, then we will learn the better how to pray, why we should pray, what we should pray for, and how we should ask. 
we shall discover that the biblical emphasis on God's sovereignty and on God's priesthood, if they function in our lives properly, will serve both as powerful incentives to prayer and as direction for the way in which we should approach God. All right. I'd hoped I'd have time for questions, but I don't. Thanks.